Well, amen. If you have your Bibles, open up to uh, Revelation chapter 2. We're going to continue our series uh, in the churches here in Revelation. And uh, we are in the church of Thyatira, chapter 2, starting in verse 18. Uh, We're going to jump in here in just a minute. Before I do that... um, we're going to kind of go through the same pattern that we've been going through when we look at uh, the introduction and the background of the city and how John introduces Jesus and then the strengths and the weaknesses, uh, the call to action and the rewards. Uh, but before we do that, I want to challenge our way of thinking about the Bible. And um, whether we recognize it or not, we come to the Bible, many of you, certainly not all of you, But most of you probably come to the Bible with a very Western way of thinking of things. That's the way that you grew up. And whether you realize it or not, that Western way of thinking is not the way that everybody else thinks. I know that that's hard to believe. And not only is it not the way that other people think, but values and emphases tend to be different. And uh, I'll just give you an example from a book I'm reading um, The missionary, I shared the missionary from Indonesia a few weeks ago, and he was talking about when they got there, he was a rich white guy, right, in in an Indonesian village. It was very common for people with money to hire a housekeeper. In fact, it was actually probably in that culture rude not to. And so as he was thinking through the hiring of the housekeeper, he started defining the relationship. We might call it a job description. Uh, what her duties would be, what time she would show up, uh, how much she would get paid. And he realized quite quickly that in Indonesian culture, we think of rules and relationship. They think about relationship, then defines the rules. And the rules are a little loosey-goosey. In fact, Lydia didn't show up at the given time. I'm just giving her that name. She showed up when she was needed. Uh, she was given an hourly wage, but as the patron of this house, the dad now, he found he had other financial responsibilities uh, to care for her extended family. In fact, even now that he is back in the States, he still pays for Lydia's kids' school. And he said, I'm sure when they get married, I will pay for the wedding as well, because what grandpa wouldn't? Now, in the same way, there was a uh, natural disaster in Indonesia, and he went back to work uh, giving some care in that area. He didn't call Lydia and say, uh, will you come help me? That, that didn't need to be communicated. She took three boats to get to where he was because she was needed. You see, the rules were defined by the relationship. And I say that because there is a very slight difference in the church in Ephesus and the church in Thyatira that we miss from a Western point of view. And we miss it because we're more concerned with rules. And so I want you to know, sometimes, you know, the Bible can be frustrating because it doesn't always go the way we think it should go. In fact, the gospel writers, they don't seem to care about order of events. I don't know if you've ever noticed that when you read Luke and John, and I always taught people, it says, well, this, you know, Jesus was a traveling thing, so it's probably just a similar story that, that happened in a different city. That was my way of answering why they were telling the story out of 
order. The gospel writers would be saying, like, what is your obsession with order? We're teaching you something. It's a theme. And we go, no, I, I need to know what, and I, I know from talking about with you guys. I see this all the time. And it drives me crazy. We all do it, right? But you're telling a story. And you'll go, uh, Dave, you got to hear this. Uh, on Tuesday, I was, wait, was it Tuesday or Wednesday? I was Wednesday. And Wednesday, I was, no, no, it definitely was Tuesday. I'm like, it doesn't matter. Tell me the story. But we, we've all done it. I was counseling a couple one time. I shouldn't say this. I was not from here. I was counseling a couple, and they were talking about an argument that they have not been able to settle in many years in their marriage. And it's funny how you can go back to that argument. And she says, well, it took place at an airport. And she said, I was facing the plane. And, and he goes, no, no, no. I was facing the plane. And I'm, you know, I'm the pastor here. I'm like, I don't think it matters. But then we had a half-hour discussion on who was facing the plane, which, by the way, never got to the real issue. See, we are so concerned with that type of thing. We miss some of the subtleties in Scripture. So let's read Thyatira. Now you're going, what, what are we going to see here? But I want to set you up because I'm, I'm trying to make you think differently, and it's going to be a little bit of a challenge. Verse 18, and the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your later works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice se sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, uh, who have not learned what some call deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers... And who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Let me just say for a second that I had to practice reading that verse. You seem, that seems a little crazy to you. But when I read it from a Western point of view growing up in the church, the one who conquers and the one who keeps my, I want to say, words. Because we, we keep faith, we don't keep works. And so that's just, one, that's just one of them in this passage. It's works, just in case you, you missed it there. And he, uh, excuse me, conquers, keeps my works until the end. To him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from the Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Here's one of the biggest things before we jump into this that stands out. Hold on a second. I'm making noises. 
here's one of the biggest things that stands out between the church in Ephesus and the church of Thyatira. If we go back to Ephesus, and remember there was all these good things that they were doing. Um, your works, your toil, your patient endurances, that you cannot bear with those who are evil, that you've tested uh, who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and you're bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. They had all these things, um, but you've abandoned the love. And so for that reason, if you don't repent, I'm going to remove the lampstand. Here, the church in Thyatira is actually has more false teaching going on in it. They've got somebody who's now leading a group of people that are called servants. Actually, the word is slaves. The word used for believers in the Bible. That's leading them astray. And then John says, if they don't repent, trouble's coming. But I have nothing further to say to you. Well, why do they get off the hook so easily? And I would argue that the thing that they have is love. The very thing that was missing in Ephesus is present here in this church. And it makes all the difference. The Ephesian church had the rules correct, but not the relationships. Thyatira has the relationships correct, but not all the rules. You see, the early church in Rome was often called um, incestuous. That was an insult to them because they called each other brothers and sisters. And the Romans couldn't understand why you do Now for us, we go, good morning, brother, morning, sister. We don't think anything about it. But in that culture, if I call you my brother or my sister, I'm sorry, I'm trying to figure out what's causing that. If I call you my brother or sister, then there comes responsibility with that. It's not a greeting. It's a relationship that now demands action. Rules. And so there's something happening in Thyatira that we run out and go, I want to be a part of the church that has all the rules correctly. And God says, I want you to be a part of a church that has all the relationships correct. So I just want you to pick that up. It's a major thing. There's other eastern and western things that are going on here. A little bit about the city. Oh yeah, I have notes. A little bit about the city. Um, probably the least of the seven cities as far as uh, prominence and uh, known stuff about it. Uh, they were mostly um, known for their trade guilds. Uh, a lot of inscriptions in the, in the ruins are, are about the trade guilds. And from the inscriptions, we can find that there was at least three major guilds in the area. Um, purple cloth, remember Lydia from Acts was uh, from Thyatira. Uh, bronze guild um, and shoemakers. Um, and, you know, think of these as kind of like unions, but like unions back when the unions were run by the mafia, okay? Um, just, I mean, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but, um, you know, there was an idea of where you worked for the unions, the trade guilds, and the trade guilds took care of you, okay? So if your business burnt down, they would say, well, the gods burnt it down, but you would go to the trade unions, they would lend you money, and you were indebted to them, not just to pay it back, but... If the head of the trade guild came and said, hey, I uh, hate to wake you up in the middle of the night, but I'm having a party and I need bread tomorrow, you would get up and make that bread. Okay, so there's just a relationship there. Um, their primary god of the city was Apollo. He is the sun god and the son of Zeus. Um, and so we note in here um, that Jesus is described 
the works of the Son of God. It's the only time this title is used in Revelation. And the emphasis, I believe, it faces the city here in Apollo the Sun God, that Jesus is the true Son of God. And the focus here in calling Jesus that is his divinity and his majesty. He's described with eyes like raging fire. And then we talked about when we looked at this in chapter 1, that's the penetrating insight and judgment of Jesus. He knows what's going on. And feet like burnished bronze. And it's interesting, as we talked about this in chapter 1, we said that it's a hard description to detect what its meaning is really about, what the significance is. It's from Daniel chapter 10. Um, and we talked about how it's possibly focused on strength or feet have the idea of direction. But notice he brings up the feet of bronze in the city that is known for bronze making. And so again, we're talking about Jesus' superiority. Now, as we get to this point, and we've been talking about these descriptions, and we've been talking about Jesus and the relationship of the church, I just wanted to take just like a little quick time out here. And let's just review some of the things that we're learning naturally, just kind of put them into words. Um, when we talk about Jesus' relationship with the church, we're reminded that Jesus is the center of the church. Remember, he is walking amongst the, the lampstands. Jesus is the center of the church. And when we say that, he's not just the center of this church. Jesus is the center of churches, big C, all of them. He walks in the midst of them. And Jesus knows, as we see in these seven churches, who are uh, geographically not that far apart, but they have all sorts of different problems. And one of the things that we can uh, learn from that is that Jesus knows the condition of his church. Jesus is fully aware of what's going on in the church, and he knows the condition of his church. Now, not only does he know the condition of his church, which, by the way, Western, Eastern way of thinking, this is much more y'all than we're comfortable with. He knows the condition of the community. We think individualistically, and it's there but we don't need to quite focus on that. We read these and we go, am I guilty of this? Am I guilty of that? It's not the question. The question is, y'all, what is the group? And so Jesus knows the condition of his church, and Jesus also understands the culture in which the church ministers. He, he's clearly, these, to me, these, the bronze, and here mentioned the sun god. As you research the city, you just go, Oh, man, these are like dings on the culture. Jesus is giving them familiar things to say, look, not this, this. And somehow we, we've got to, we're going to talk about this this morning, we like to separate the secular and the sacred. And we want to say, you know, Jesus knows this thing, but he just doesn't understand the world we live in. He clearly understands the world in which they live in. And when we look at this, when Jesus knows the condition of his church, and when Jesus understands the culture in which they live in, Jesus desires that the church make the necessary changes. He's not just saying, oh, I get it, you know, you're good, they're bad. He's saying, no, there, there's, there's things that need to change. There's no perfect church. There's no perfect people. And what Jesus desires is that his people be humble and repentant and responsive. And one of the things that we have to read into this and have to recognize is that Jesus is willing to close the doors if the church doesn't repent. That means make the necessary changes. And that's been clear in each of these. So 
understand that in our setting, Jesus walks in the midst of his church. He knows the condition of his church and his people. And he desires for us to be the church that he wants us to be. And so we, we recognize that as we look at these churches. All right, the strengths of, of uh, Thyatira. It can, it can be noted again that the two churches with the biggest issues were probably the Ephesian church and the church in Thyatira also have the longest list of strengths. And, uh, you know, part of that might be just God being very gracious to say, look, I love you, okay? Right? Here's the strengths, but... Right? We do that. So uh, he says, I know your works. Now, I pointed out as I was reading, uh, here, I know your works. Uh, And then uh, twice in the text, this idea of works is brought up again. Um, And I I read one one of them. He says, uh, in verse 23, he says, I will strike your children dead until all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart and will give each of you according to your works. And then again, um, he says, the keep, those who keep my works. And so just a question to just kind of address here, should we be concerned, should we, should y'all, be concerned with our works? Uh, let me just read this uh, one passage here from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you think we should be concerned with our work? Now, here, Paul is talking about the work of of ministers and missionaries, but it's a common theme in Scripture that we will each stand before God and give an account for our work. Now, again, Western, we are saved by faith, through grace, not by... That's the defined relationship. So I ask Jesus into my heart, pick a pew and write it out. But you see, in an Eastern way, when you enter into a relationship, it's going to cost you something. Now you remember, right, Paul's journeys, those of you around the church, and a lot of times he didn't take money from the churches. Remember, he, he was a tent maker. And some of you would say, well, you know, Paul, Paul didn't want to take any money from the churches because it would cost him. No. Paul doesn't want to be indebted to any of the churches. He's a traveling missionary. He doesn't want the church of Philippi to say, hey, we have a problem, you need to come, because we paid you. See, if you're going to enter into relationship with Jesus Christ, I hate to tell you, the works are implied. That's part of the relationship. And so here's a few things about the works from this verse. What you do will be disclosed. We will stand before God and our works will be disclosed. Now, I got to tell you, again, Western kid growing up, I just pictured, I pictured it this way. I don't know why. Maybe some of you pictured it. 
there's, the, there's the Bema seat. There's the big judgment seat. Um, I pictured a huge big screen over the seat and a long line. And we get up to the line and we stand there and then there's the video of our life being played for all. And you're like, oh, 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 I remember that. Oh, it was terrible. All right, is it over? Is it done? I can go in now, right? That's how I kind of pictured it. We understand in culture where relationship is everything. You know, I'll tell you, one of our values on Western ways, right, is privacy. Amen? The same book the the missionary was talking about when a couple came to him for marital advice because the husband had had an affair. And the wife's response is, how can I show my face in the village? From a Western point of view, he's like, we got a bigger problem than this. But then he said, you know, in a small village... Everybody knows that they came to the pastor. Not only that, they live in huts. Nobody hid what they were doing in the first place. You see, the culture already knew everything. Our idea of privacy is very Western and modern. And so the idea of things being disclosed in a different culture, that's... That's a big deal. Second, they're going to be tested. In other words, sometimes you can do the wrong thing with the right motives. And you can do the right thing with the wrong motives. And it's going to be tested on which way you do it. But I did it. I had the rules and I obeyed the rules. And then we're going to be rewarded. Now, I've done a lot of reading on this, and uh, I tend to, uh, um, I'll just be honest, tend to take maybe a little bit of a minority view. I I think that there's actual rewards in heaven. Uh, Most people would just say the reward is Jesus, the reward is heaven. We all get the same thing. But the idea then of the works being disclosed and tested, then what is it? Then the reward seems mute to me. It doesn't doesn't make a point. Um, So however you want to do that, we're going to be rewarded. Okay, I'll let you you work that out on your own, but I think it matters. So second strength, I know your love. And I would say this is, this is, we're meant to grab this in this church. Here's where they're different. They have a loving relationship with one another. And it's known. And third, I know your faith. Uh, faith is trusting in God more than this world. Uh, you go, okay, yeah, I know that. It's, it's, it's really good until you actually have to do it. Um, another different culture point of view. The missionary said, I kept getting woken up in the middle of the night. He was teaching at a seminary. He said, you know, the students, he's about to die. He said, I'll tell you, the first few times that happened, that got my heart racing, right? I was dressed and running across the, the, the compound to get to find out, you know, so-and-so has a cold. You know, what do we do? Take a couple aspirin and call me in the morning. That culture... He said, every time I did that, went back, this dumb American, and they prayed for the student. Why? Because they believed that God was involved. We just say, oh, it's all just natural science stuff. You see, faith, I'm not saying don't take the aspirin and call me in the morning. Well, don't call me at all. Okay, I mean, just sick, you're sick. Okay, just deal with it. But oftentimes, we trust the world more than we actually trust God. 
we don't turn to God until we've gotten rid of all of our own angles and roads and things. It means trusting in God when life is difficult. He says, I know your faith. And fourth, I know your service. Now, the question I ask myself is, how is service different than works? Um, We might use those words interchangeably. The idea of service here is more of an active life of care and help. It's the charitable ministries that we do. It's helping those who can't repay us. Um, In Luke chapter 14, Jesus says, invite people to your house who couldn't invite you back. Like invite the lame and the the blind. And, you know, people that, that, you know, if if you invite me over, um, you know, I'm going to say, okay, then you guys come over next week and, you know, I'll repay you. And Jesus says, no, like have people over that can't invite, pay you back. That's, that's charitable. That's serving. Now notice also, he says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your later works exceed the first. And so he says, I know, I know your growth. I know you're growing in these things. Now, some commentators would point out that the way that the Greek works, it could be a coupling here. In other words, works and love go together, faith and service go together. And I don't know that we need to to make that distinction. It doesn't really make a a difference in the interpretation. But either way, we have this, this growing works, love, faith, and service that is happening. Sounds like a great church. But as in all the, most of the other churches, in verse 20, we have a but. But I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel. Um, Jezebel is a reference to uh, the wife of Ahab in the Old Testament. Uh, she was an evil character. Um, commentators are going to disagree on whether this is a specific person, like a person in Thyatira, not named Jezebel, but being talked about in third person here. Or is this a movement, like we have seen the, uh, the Nicolaitans? Or is, and some people want to argue this is a period of time. This is a period of time and when these type of sins were going on. She's described as a prophetess. Um, she is, um, she's described as a teacher. Uh, she's described as one who leads people towards sexual immorality, probably again in connection with the guilds. Uh, She claims secret knowledge. And I think we see in here uh, a reference again to Balaam. Uh, It's not specific here, although uh, we'll look at it. Morning Star could be a reference to uh, a Balaam comment. Uh, If you're doing the church reading, we just read the story of Balaam. And uh, over the years, it's just one that's been fascinating to me. Because if you read it, you're like, this guy seems like a nice guy. He... He seems to claim Yahweh as his God. He says, I can't say anything except what Yahweh tells me to say. I can't, I just, that's what I have to do. And, uh, and, and then he, God, Yahweh says, go ahead and go with these guys. And, and uh, he gets on his donkey and goes, and instantly God tries to punish him. God just told him to go. And what we find is what Balaam is doing is right, but he has bad motives. And we have, the, we have trouble making the distinction. But in another society, okay, your motives, your heart, your relationship matters more than your actions. 
And so Balaam is kind of put up in this, this type of way. Um, also, as mentioned, some who participate. So if you, uh, if you look at the p- passage that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality. So some have been participating. Some from the church are participating. And the, clearly, the word servant, slaves there, is referring to God's children. Uh, sexual immorality, food sacrifice to idols. We've been talking about this stuff, and we go, you know what? Not a big deal in my culture, right? I don't have that problem. But if we're talking about the guilds, then I, I believe we are. We're talking about how we like to make a separation between the secular and the sacred. And one of the things that this Jezebel is, I believe, teaching is we can be involved in this, and we can be involved in this. It's okay. You can do these things that have clearly been stated in Scripture and in other writings that you can't do. And so we, we have that temptation as well. Are, are we going to get involved in things that we know the Bible teaches, it, but the Bible's an ancient book. This doesn't really relate to, you know, it doesn't talk about my place of work specifically. Or are we going to say that all things are sacred? Our work, our family, our bodies, our culture. We're going to say they're all sacred and they all come under God's authority. And again, we see the refusal to repent. I gave her the opportunity. She did not repent. So here's the warnings. Um, First to Jezebel and her followers. Um, Throw Jezebel in a sickbed. Uh, In the Greek there, it's just throw Jezebel in a bed, and I believe John is making a a kind of play on words. She's the adulteress who is now being thrown in a different type of bed, and most commentators say sick bed, and it's the best translation here. So she's going from the dead of adultery to the bed of sickness. We see that the participants, those who now have started to get involved in this, are entering into tribulation. And probably one of the verses that just like, struck you as I was reading it, verse 23, and I will strike her children dead. And from a Western point of view, we go, we're really uncomfortable with that, God. Uh, I think here, uh, children is disciples. Okay, it's, it's those who have bought in on and are teaching others this way. Uh, Paul calls Timothy his child. Okay, it's that type of relationship. And so these disciples of Jesus are now becoming disciples or have become disciples of Jezebel and they will be judged because of that. What is the purpose for something like that? It seems, God, why don't you just work it all in the end and why do we judge people and shouldn't we just all try to get along? Isn't the point, didn't David say the point is love? The purpose here, and he clearly states that, is a warning to the church. He says, And I will strike her children dead and note, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each according to your work. It's a wake-up call. And sometimes we say in our church, well, we don't want to deal with sin. We don't want to call people out because we, we just, most people know it's wrong and we're just going to avoid it and we're just going to love them and hopefully they get better. But the Bible clearly teaches, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all. Why? So that the rest may stand in fear. 
In other words, so the church gets it. And so we talked about the, the progression here, that there was, uh, they were tolerating it, they were participating in it, and the next church, they're dead. And we're reminded, nothing is hidden from God. To the rest of the church, he says, no other burden. Why not? Continue to grow in works, love, faith, and service. They're growing in that. Hold on to this good teaching. They're not following the bad teaching. They don't, they don't know that and know versus they know it. They know what's being taught over here, but they don't know it in a participatory sort of way. And so we go back to the church in Ephesus that they were testing, uh, they were um, testing those who call themselves to be apostles. So we're reminded Thyatira needs to test the spirits as well. And so, no other burden, they're called to hold fast, um, which is grab onto, um, you know, we, we want to say, hold on to good doctrine. But what we're seeing here is that's not enough. Hold on to loving one another. Hold on to serving one another. The relationship is so important. And there's re- re- rewards mentioned. Uh, to the one who uh, conquers and keeps my word. Um, to the one who conquers and who keeps my word until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Now, let me just kind of say there's a little kind of neat pattern here, I think, in these verses. Uh, Hold fast, verse 25, and to those who conquer or overcome, uh, he says, um, to those who conquer and keeps. And that's just a great pattern that we can be reminded of. Uh, um, To these people that, that... conquer and keep, we have this hold on and then overcome. It's not in your notes. There wasn't enough room. And keep. And I just think those are really good words. Hold on. And not just to the right things, but to the right relationships. And overcome and keep. Keep these things. And the gift, two are mentioned here. Um, Verse 27. And he will rule with them with a rod of iron. And when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even I myself have received authority from the Father. Um, the, the first reward is, is to rule with Christ. And it's quoting Psalm chapter 2, 8, and 9, which was clearly believed to be a messianic verse. And speaking of what was going to happen when the, the Messiah came is that he was going to rule over the nations. And now... John is saying, you're going to rule with Christ, which those of you who grew up in the church, it's not a new, new thought that we rule with Christ. Now, I don't know how that's going to play out. I, I, don't, I don't get it. Um, I just know it's promised. And so uh, it should drive us towards faithfulness. So to rule with Jesus, Psalm 2, 8 and 9. And then uh, he says, and I will give him the morning star. Um, I, I, don't, uh, I don't have a need for a star right now. Uh, I don't know where I would put it, right? Does that fit in the closet? Is that a garage item? I don't know. Um, but there's more to it than that. In uh, chapter 22, verse 16, Jesus is called the morning star. So listen. Again, relationship defines the rules. And the relationship that we get is with Jesus. 
What John is saying is if you if you're pressing on, if you're if you're child, what you get is Jesus. Now I know some of you grew up saying what you get is heaven. I'm sure heaven is great. But I've said it before. If you want heaven without Jesus, you're actually looking for the other place. Because what we get in heaven is a pure relationship with Jesus. It's described as a marriage relationship. So if you think you're entering into heaven without Jesus, it's like entering into marriage without your spouse. Right? You go through the ceremony, right? I now pronounce you husband and wife. And you say, see you later. If I see at the mall, I'll say hi. No. Right? You assume those two people are leaving together, right? And that's when you enter into with Jesus. Now, I said um, this is part of the prophecy of Balaam in Numbers chapter 24 when he talks about the star from Jacob. And so, again, I think this is a messianic reference, Old Testament and definitely New Testament reference to Jesus. It's just amazing. I just got to tell you, I, I'm, I get to study this all week and then try to, in 30 to 45 minutes, explain it all to you. And I know you're like, oh, okay, Dave, thanks. You know, I, this is so much fun during the week, tracing down all these, these references. Uh, my Bible has a bunch of stars and notes and different things and trying to remember this and you know, the problem is I'm doing seven churches, so I'll forget, you know, in a few weeks. But there is just, it's like every line here has 10 different lines we could go down. And I just want us to remember that Jesus is in the center of the church. And, and our lesson today is love matters. Like we could get some of the theology wrong. And by the way, I promise you we do. We could get some of the practices wrong, and I promise you, we can't. We, I know we're Westerners, and we think we're 100% right, but other churches in other parts of the world do it differently, and I think on some of them we're going to find out we were wrong. So we could get our practices wrong. But church, listen. What we can't get wrong is love of God and love for other people. If we get that wrong, we've missed everything else. Love covers a multitude of sins. What we believe is very important, but what we do is also important. Our works, our service. And a healthy church should be growing in works, love, faith, and service. And that's not looking back. That's looking forward with an idea of how are we going to grow in these things. And it's not easy, as we have seen personally and experienced. So my encourage to you is make sure the relationship is right and the actions will follow. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning and uh, just the exciting news that we uh, shared and from your word and worship and in things moving forward in our church. We praise you for that. Lord, I pray that we would just honestly just examine ourselves. Um, each one. Um, I know that in times we want to be right. Um, 
we want to be justified. Uh, we want to define the rules of engagement in whatever it is we do. And Lord, sometimes we do that at the cost of relationship. And so, Lord, may we examine where we need to put you and people first and trust that you'll work out the details. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.